You're listening to the Wilderness Warrior Podcast, forging dangerous men in wild places. In World War I, U.S. forces used the Springfield 1903 bolt-action rifle, chambered in 30-odd-6 Springfield as their primary weapon issued to standard fighting forces. After the war, the United States had a mind for superiority in their standard-issued weapons that was somewhere outside the bolt-action rifle. They wanted a handheld, semi-automatic rifle. Times were different back then. Instead of raising taxes and hiring a contractor or spending a fortune on a department full of government engineers to develop this new rifle, they put out a call to inventors. One man caught their attention. His name was John Garand. It was he who was commissioned to design and build what is now known as the M1 Garand. This semi-automatic rifle held eight 30-06 Springfield rounds. It used a clip that was loaded from the top and ejected with a ping upon firing the last round. The project finished just three years ahead of World War II. Other countries still were using the slower rate-of-fire bolt-action rifles. The Germans used the K-98 Mauser, the British used the Lee Enfield, and the Japanese had the Type 99. The Garand had superiority as the standard-issued rifle with a larger capacity and a faster rate of fire. With only a few men armed with the Garands, they could lay down covering fire similar to that of a machine gunner. It was well known for its durability and reliability. Few items can represent the history of the United States like the M1 Garand. As General George S. Patton once said, The M1 Garand is the greatest battle implement ever devised by men. Well, welcome back to the Wilderness Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Dan Burkholder, and Eric Kahn is out of town. He is on vacation doing who knows what. He's probably working on growing more chest hair and a longer beard. I don't know. Who knows? Today, I am joined by my brother, Jason Burkholder. Say hello, Jason. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and I don't know if my beard can quite compare to Eric's, but it cannot. I'm trying. It cannot. It doesn't compare. It doesn't even compare to mine. So anyway, but thanks for, ha- you know, he's my brother, so we've got to razz him. So uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. So today, we're going to be talking about old guns. Jason has an interest in old guns. It, when we were growing up, Jason would often be playing, tinkering with guns. I, I do remember one story where uh, this, I mean, this didn't didn't happen. This didn't happen if there are any feds listening. Mm-hmm. But Jason did not fashion a suppressor, and he did not uh, fire it and show off for a uh, detective friend of ours. And the detective friend did not tell him to remove it. Wait, this is really getting confusing. Anyway, so Jason would play around with guns a lot, I was more into the hunting side, but he is very captured by guns, so I wanted him to have him on the podcast to talk specifically about one of his interests, and that is old guns, uh, particularly the M1 Garand and the 1911. Yes. Two, two really cool guns. So why, I just want to know, why the interest in the old guns? 
Yeah. So uh, starting off my my collection, uh, I believe I was 14 when I really started showing an interest in guns. And I remember wanting a Ruger 1022 so bad that that's all I asked for Christmas. I wanted one so bad. I didn't want anything else for my birthday or for Christmas, but that. And uh, I, uh, our father had one. He actually stole it from children. Uh, he wanted at a, <laughs> an auction. At a rod and gun club. Yeah. yeah so Hunter safety yeah, auction. Yeah, so hunter safety auction. Yeah, so the, my uh, our uncle... He uh, he was part of the, the rod and gun club, and he was a hunter safety instructor. And so they would invite us to this big rod and gun club thing every once in a while. There would be a uh, a raffle for all these all these guns. And I remember I remember the one there was one year this this turd of a human being. He would look through the tickets that he would draw because it had a name and where you're from. And sure enough, he would return tickets if they weren't from Sparta. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just gave it away from this town in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this random town in Wisconsin. But but our dear father uh, at this hunter safety youth event, he won a Ruger ten twenty two. Yeah, I remember uh, a bunch of twelve year olds because that's when you could start hunting. All sitting around the little raffle ticket, just waiting eagerly to see if they're the ones to win the <laughs> rifle. I was one of them, and then our father's name was called. <laughs> he, <laughs> I mean, it was. I want to know anyone, what but. dad puts his name on a ticket instead of his son's. Well, it, you know what? Anyway, we love dad. Yeah, he's he's great. He's going to listen to this, so he's going to. I hope he we're going to hear about this. We're going to hear about this later. So I, anyway, I'm as sh- you were, I'm sure both of our stories uh, have changed over the years. But the way I remember it <laughs> is, it was Christmas Eve. I still didn't have any presents, and mom told him, "You give him that ten twenty two, or else." And uh, sure enough, came came uh, dinner time uh, when we opened presents on Christmas Eve, and all of a sudden there was a large package wrapped in a Packers blanket in the corner by the tree. Yeah, Packers fleece blanket. Yep, surprise, surprise. So Thought ahead. I stuck to my guns and uh, <laughs> ended up winning that battle. <laughs> Literally stuck to your gun, the ten twenty two. So that was that was your first. That was the first. After that. Um, you know, it took a while. I had to turn 18 before I could start uh, purchasing my own guns legally. Uh, and I was really interested in new guns, as most new gun owners are. You're looking for, like, self-defense or hunting, uh, shotguns to go clay shooting with. Uh, and I was I was captivated by new guns. I didn't want some old piece of junk that somebody else had used. I wanted a new gun. Uh, as my collection progressed, I, I started... Your, your collection that... By the way, it is no longer around, right? It was tragically yeah. lost. Yeah, I, yeah. But some anyway. uh, what Salt Lake? We Salt Lake, yeah. Bolt, boating accident. Yeah, know. boating accident on the Great Salt Lake. They're mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so your collection, you had some new guns, and you started to get an interest elsewhere. Yeah, uh, I, our uncle was a huge factor in this because you know, he was very well along in his collection before he lost it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he was really into collecting old guns, and he'd explain all the history of them. And I really started to see that old guns were just different than new guns. I mean, they're different in the wear and the patina on them, but also the designs, uh, specifically World War II guns or turn-of-the-century guns, they're really trying to figure out how to make automatic weapons work or what gun designs worked better than, than they had the previous hundred years. 
So uh, there are some really neat and unique designs out there that you just don't see anymore uh, because they're not as efficient as what gun manufacturers have figured out. So the M1 Grand is one of those. Uh, I I always saw it as unattainium. Like even 10, 15 years ago when I started collecting, they were expensive and hard to get. But that's until I found out about uh, the civilian marksmanship program. And I think we'll go into that a little later on how... Yeah how I purchased the guns, but there's just something about old guns, the feel of, of real wood and, and forged metal, uh, that is different than anything you can really get today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Even in my research for the show, as I'm looking at like, okay, what did, what did other countries use in world war two for their primary standard issued, issued rifle? And you look at the German uh, K98, the Mauser action, Mm -hmm. the Mauser is still used today. That action is still used today. Uh, and it got its genesis around that time in Germany. And there is something interesting about the way that we recycle technology. Sometimes, I, I mean, maybe the Mauser action is, you know, one of the better actions. I don't really know. I'm not an engineer. But it had its genesis during World War II, and that technology is still used today. And I think that's just really fascinating. You know, and there are some other things. Uh, quality of components is another uh advantage of some of these older rifles and you, you you hear this from the old old timers right and i'm sure they were seeing it back in the 1940s too mm-hmm. they're like oh they don't make them like they used to you know but it's it's actually true a lot of the components now if anybody has uh quote unquote built an ar-15 you know like assembled it is mm-hmm. essentially what you're doing yeah. you come to find out that mil spec is more like more like a guideline you yeah, know, than yeah, like a than, specification. Than actual rules. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and a lot of the components are kind of cheap. And if you want to, by the way, if you want to build a really high quality, it's not mill spec parts. They're custom parts. Yeah. You know, so anyway, I, I digress. But these old guns, they've got a couple of cool factors. One is, like you said, the patina. You've also got some of the the materials that they use are really interesting yeah like i i know that you've you've mentioned in the past uh that you really don't like plastic stocks not a fan of plastic stocks yeah why is that man if you want to pick up a gun and have a feel like a squirt gun just pick up a gun with a plastic stock uh especially new plastic stocks um the technology has advanced really far and and a lot of the times the composites that they're able to come up with are are revolutionary and groundbreaking and extremely durable and this and by the just, way this is a man who went to school uh and learned about plastics yes, yep, so yeah yep. yeah the the guns that have an abundance of plastic on them when i'm playing with my collection that i used to have uh i just don't care about them i don't feel anything for them they're they're tools which is oftentimes why you purchase firearms is because yeah, it's I'm a, a pragmatist tool. yeah yeah yeah, oh. this is a good all-round caliber. I can use a, a 300 Win Mag for any big game in the world. And if, uh, I mean, I've heard somebody say there is no such thing as too dead as far as overkill. But for pronghorn hunting and and such, I do have other smaller calibers. But yeah, that's how I approach approach guns. But you you you've got a more of an artiste motif. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, so it's not just World War II weapons. Uh, there are other guns um, that I've been getting interested in. in well, actually, so John Moses Browning designed the 1911. Uh, his last design he didn't quite finish was the Browning High Power or Browning P35. He uh, was working with FN in Belgium at the time, 
But that's another weapon that has a ton of history um, with wood and metal that is just a solid, good design uh, that's timeless. So guns like that, Ruger and their Mark series, I particularly like Ruger Mark IIs. I went a little crazy and bought several last year. Uh, those are from like the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and even though those are more recent, they just have a certain feel and look to them that uh, is different than new guns today. Yeah, and they're also proven. Mm-hmm. They last. What sounds to me like a couple of reasons why. One would be interested in old guns. And it is it uh, and it is more than just the look has something to do with it. Uh, a wood stock tells you something. And a plastic stock tells you something. Mm-hmm. Now, you use a, a plastic stock for elk hunting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because it's a good tool for that because it's lighter weight. It makes a great walking stick. It's a, Yeah, yeah, beating back brush, yep. you know, jumping over barbed wire. You know, well, I'm not condoning using a firearm to uh, cross barbed wire. Anyway, so, but there is something about a, a wood stock on a gun. And then to have almost like a rooted element it's telling you a story. This item is telling you a story. This is why people like antiques. At the at you know the the risk of being called uh, gay or or something like that, limp wristed. I actually really like oil paintings. I've purchased a couple of turn of the century oil paintings, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds oil paintings for my collection, and uh, there is something really fantastic about looking at a it this is actually a piece of art, unlike the M1 Grand or the the 1911, which was not exactly designed as a piece of art, but has almost elevated to that level. Mm, mm-hmm. But you look at this piece of art that was designed, you know, now 120 years ago, uh, the M1 Grand was in the 1930s, I believe when it was designed, when it was finished and completed. So you have these items that are over 100 years old, and you're looking at the way that people thought and the way that, you know, in the events, uh, in, in the case of the Grand, uh, gave superiority to armed forces, the United States Armed Forces, you know, and is, like I said in the introduction, a representation of America in a way as like an icon. Mm-hmm. And that's what an icon is, is a representation. And so there's a couple of cool factors with some of these old guns. And so uh, you've bought a, a number of these of these firearms, mm-hmm. a number of the M1 Garands. We each have bought uh, a 1911. I think mine is a Colt frame. Yep. What, what do you have? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I, I mean, <clears throat> talking about the history of, of World War II firearms in, in specific, specifically, uh, you can really go nerdy with it because there are so many different parts and revisions. They were, they were modifying parts constantly. Um, like on the fly. On the fly. So they're making make improvements yeah. on the fly. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so I, I mean there's hundreds different, uh, hundreds of different variations out there. Uh, so one of the things that they would do, though, is these were tools. These were, were military tools. So uh, most M1 Grands and most 1911s are mixed masters. Uh, they would go to back to an armory after they were in service for an, uh, a length of time, and they would completely disassemble them, inspect each part, and just throw guns back together using whatever parts were in the bin. So my 1911 uh, was made by Ithaca. The frame was made by Ithaca, but the slide was made by Colt, and the barrel was most likely on a Remington Rand when it was 
built, uh, but all the parts are from World War II, which makes it very desirable, especially for me, who's looking for a World War II firearm. You, unfortunately, were not so lucky with your 1911. You have a, a Colt frame, but then your slide was replaced in the 80s, and your barrel, I think, is a 1990. Yeah, so you know what? Some of us get luckier than others, and we'll talk about the civilian marksmanship program, the CMP, and how that works. It is kind of luck of the draw if you can't if you don't live in Alabama or in Ohio, Ohio, okay, mm-hmm. uh, where you can go and actually pick out some of these firearms. I don't believe the 1911s you were able to do that with. No, no, no okay. that's all luck of the draw. That's all like a lottery system. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so when uh, the United States commissioned. Like the M1 Garands, you you had mentioned with the 1911s, there's multiple parts. But talk to me about the M1 Garands. Who were who was commissioned to make these Garands? Yeah, originally Springfield Armory. Uh, Winchester was also another manufacturer. Winchester Repeating Arms, those were the two manufacturers of M1 Garands through World War II. So if you're looking for a World War II rifle, that's the place to start. Uh, later, the, the Garand was made up until 1956. And Harrington and Richardson, and uh, probably my favorite, even though I don't own one, is International Harvester Corporation made them through the 50s. So I don't have a IHC rifle, but I do have parts, and it always makes me giggle every time I see tractor parts on my guns. Yeah, that's great. International Harvester. Man, I just have a song going through my head, but I'm not going <laughs> to sing it for everybody. Well, gentlemen, one of the sponsors for this show is Salt and Strings Butchery. In Illinois, one of my all-time favorite sponsors, and there's a reason why, Brian. Some oh, people, right. some people make epic pilgrimages. We made our own. We did. Red-blooded men in search of red meat. Mm. We went to Illinois, Dan, and what did we get? We got a 15-passenger van full of meat. Is what we got. Not just any meat, but custom beef that is delicious. I know because I've eaten copious amounts of it. And when we say van full. It was a van full, full van of meat. So here's the other thing. There was a lot of FOMO from our viewership. But now, Dan, they have a way that they can buy the meat themselves. That's right. So Salt and Strings, fortunately for everybody, which is a Christian company, and we love these people, Quinn and Samantha Bible. Okay, they're launching an online store where you can purchase the same high quality beef that, I mean, I ate a T-bone steak the other night. It was mm. cut so thick. Unbelievable. It was, oh, yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's been it's been I a mean, meat extravaganza. It, so <laughs> it was such a big piece of meat. I only ate a quarter of a steak, just to give you an idea. So they launched this website where you can order farm-to-table beef, and it will be delivered straight to your door. So look at their available bundles at saltandstrings.com. That's saltandstrings.com. Or email info at saltandstrings.com with any questions. You can have the meat sent to you. I've actually tried this out. They sent me meat in a box. It was unbelievable. Had some mm. ribeyes. Some I know. Beef bundles. I know. Remember, we cooked it all at my house, and we didn't invite Brian. Yeah, they didn't invite me. So I had to drive into Nebraska in a van to get my own beef. But speaking, now you don't have to, listener. Speaking of FOMO, sorry, Brian. You don't have to be like Brian. <laughs> Check out the link in our show notes or go to Salt and Strings dot com and get your beef bundle today when you order these guns okay so the cmp let's just let's just talk about it because we've alluded to it enough times so the cmp the civilian marksmanship program um uh, correct me if i'm wrong you're the you're actually the expert here oh boy you are an expert 
uh, and I, I see you had put in your notes, I am not an expert, but yep. you know, as I was thinking about this, so what, um, may I ask how many grands have you allegedly purchased received from the CMP? I have purchased 10, 10. Okay. So if I had somebody that I was talking to who was a uh, Corvette enthusiast mm-hmm. and, and I said, how many Corvettes do you own? And you said 10, but I'm not an expert. But they could tell you exactly where and when and how everything was manufactured and any variations. Um, I, I would call that person somewhat of an expert. So as an expert on M1 Garands, I'm trying to remember what in the world question I was going to ask you. How do you purchase them from oh, the Oh, yeah. CMP? How do you purchase? Oh, yeah. Purchasing them from the CMP because you've done that multiple times. So, so the CMP receives these firearms from the U.S. government. Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting story uh, without getting too into it, because honestly, uh, I don't know that much about it. I do know that it started as a law enacted by the federal government in 1996. The CMP is supposed to be dedicated to training uh, firearm safety, firearm uh, competitions uh, specifically towards youths to promote firearm safety and uh, proper firearm use, but uh, decommissioned military surplus uh, firearms and uh, mil-serp items like uh, ammo and bayonets and slings into the hands of civilians. So what they do is the government gives M1 Grands, gives 1911s, um, with a few caveats, uh, to the CMP. The CMP has armors that go through the guns, make sure they're safe to shoot, and then they're able to sell them to civilians. Oh, so the CMP has like the gunsmiths or whatever that are, are checking the firearms. For some reason, I thought there were armorers at the U.S. government. And now that I'm saying this out loud, this sounds ridiculous. That would actually make sure that these were in functioning order before they sent them back into the civilian population. No, so it, it's CMP armorers that do it. And they actually have little cards whenever you buy a rifle or a 1911 that says what armor checked over the gun and test fired it. It's all part of the history of, you know, closing out the history of that firearm as it's leaving military service. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The CMP, like Jason said, is well known for its youth shooting marksmanship Mm -hmm. programs, very involved in that. Actually, in getting into the process, and if you are interested in, in buying one of these firearms, the last batch was from the Philippines, if I'm not correct. Yeah, they are still selling M1 Grands. Uh, so they have a grading system to determine the quality of the firearm. The golden age has long passed. Uh, the first ones that they received were actually so. Man, that's like the most depressing statement yeah. I've ever heard. The golden age is long past. <laughs> Sorry, it's gone. The golden age of military surplus is gone. It's gone. Yeah, they're not be. decommissioning M16s and sending them no. through the CMP. So no, actually, the uh, M1 Grand is the last U.S. service battle rifle you can buy because everyone after that, that starting with the M14, is select fire. So yeah. that's a whole different topic. conversation. Yeah. But yeah, the golden age of military sur- surplus is gone. It used to be that we could walk into the local fleet farm at, uh, in Menominee, Wisconsin, and they would have aisles and aisles of military surplus gear. I was younger. I remember thinking back to that and walking through those aisles, and I'm like, look at all this old smelly junk. Yeah. And man, I wish that it was back. Man, was- for that smell again. Yeah, there are barrels of M1 Garands and... Uh, Russian uh, SKSs. Yeah. The um, SKS, yeah, that's right. And, and amongst others. Gants, all, yeah, AK-47s, all sorts of stuff that you could you could buy. But no more. So anyway, uh, the the latest ones, <laughs> the latest uh, M1 Garands you can get from the CMP did come from the Philippines. Uh, as I was saying, it's 
part of a lend-lease program, they call it with the, the U.S. government, where we lend out uh, firearms or gear to our allies for, the, for their military to use as they're fighting conflicts or as they're developing their country. Uh, we've lent them, lent them out to the, the U.K., Honduras, uh, and the latest ones are, are the Philippines. Mm-hmm. M1 grants we got back from the U.K., they took really good care of them, and they're some of the most pristine ones out there. I think there's only 37,000. So you're saying that the U.S. government meddles in other countries' affairs and by supplying them with different firearms and in for, for so war. many more ways than we know. Oh man, yeah. Hey, all you have to do is listen to Black Sabbath War Pig to know my thoughts on this. <laughs> Are you recommending Black Sabbath? <laughs> I am on this show. Yes, I am. Quote me. The Lend Lease. So the Philippines use the firearms. The lease is up. They sent them back. They were decommissioned. And sent to the CMP. Yeah, well, so it, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, these ones from the Philippines were terrible. Uh, they were all in crates in a warehouse that had maybe half a roof. <laughs> this is just hilarious. The golden age is, is gone. Far gone. And the Philippines guns are terrible. They're terrible. The CMP had to pay to ship them back. The government wasn't going to do that. And before they could do that, there are so many termites in the crates and in the rifles. They had to, like, bug bomb them and pay to have them uh, pesticide, basically, before they could import them. It's all part of um, importing wood into the country. So it cost a ton of money, and then when they got them back, I've heard up to like 70% of the barrels of these 80,000 guns from the Philippines are no good. They're just rusted through. Oh, man. They're pretty rough. They do have a few, um, they call them rack grades. It's the lowest grade you can get. And I, uh, my, the last two I ordered were rack grades and they were rough. They were ugly. They were, (laughs) they were, were so, so, so just so we're not wasting everybody's time. Is there going to be any more shipments of these M1 grants from any other country? I don't believe there are any other large amounts out in the lend lease program. Yeah. So it's pretty much private sale as soon as these are up. Okay. But, but so so everybody's aware the CMP, they do have other firearms other than the M1 Garand. Uh, there, there are a few others. And if, if you're curious, you can go look at it. There's a whole process in which you need to, to go through in order to buy a firearm through them, including like being a part of a, a marksmanship program, uh, being a, a, a member of a gun club or is that a same the same thing same th- yeah same thing being a part of a, an affiliated club they call it there's like over 2000 uh i was lucky enough when i went to order my first one i had heard so a little backstory i had heard from our uncle that it was really difficult to get an m1 grand from the cmp there are a lot of hoops you had to jump through and a lot of things you had to fill out and that it was just a pain and that was probably eight ten years ago and so that really turned me off to it it was about two years ago that I'm like, you know what? I really want an M1 Grand. I have some money. I want an M1 Grand. So I'm going to look into this. 20 minutes later, I had my form in the mail. <laughs> so it was not difficult at all. No. Uh, you have to fill out a form and have it notarized. So I just ran to my bank to do that. And then uh, proof of citizenship, like a birth certificate, uh, and then the membership in the CMP affiliated club, which the local Rod and Gun Club I was a part of uh, was was a affiliated club. And then uh, firearms-related activity, which is like military service or um, hunter competition safety. shooting. Yeah, hunter safety. Yeah. So yeah. All, all of those work. And so I was able to get those documents together in minutes and uh, order my first M1 Grand, which as I was filling out the order form, I typed a one. And then I went, no, that's not enough. And I typed a two. <laughs> yeah, so, and you can order You could order up to eight in a, in a calendar year, correct? Yeah, correct. 
Yeah. So, uh, but like we said, the golden age is gone. So you can cry yourself to sleep. Let me just ask you, uh, for those that then are like, okay, well, great. I can't order from the CMP, even though the prices were amazing. It was like $650. It depends on the grade that you were buying, but, uh, anywhere from like 600 to $800 or some, somewhere in there, uh, per rifle, you're not going to find them for those prices. No. Uh, on the, on the private market. And just as a disclaimer, if you do have a CMP rifle, you're not supposed to sell it. Correct? Correct. So if you find, just just as a disclaimer. So that being said, if you're looking for an M1 Garand uh, from a private sale, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you would look for? I, I know that there are some that are going to be looking for a gun that performs really well because they actually want to shoot it still. Yeah. And then there's going to be those people that have more of an interest in the history. So what would you look for given those categories? You really need to do a lot of research. So the reason I say I am not an expert, I recently just purchased this book. Luckily, it went back into print because they're really hard to find. But uh, there's a book by Bruce Canfield called uh, The M1 Grand Rifle, and it's almost a thousand pages long. And it goes through the history and all the different manufacturers and all the different dates and changes uh, so there's a ton of information out there, but if, with just a little bit of research, you can have a better eye as you're going to purchase a rifle. I'm on a few different M1 Grand forums and groups, and it's almost every week that you get somebody posting their new rifle, and they're so proud. And it's actually a reproduction that was made in like 1982 or something like that. Oh, man. Um, still a cool rifle if it functions. Uh, some of them weren't great reproductions. but Made in Croatia. Yeah, anyway. pretty much. Yeah, Actually, yes. They were. Okay. Uh, you know, not the World War II history that they thought that it was. When I'm looking for an M1 Grand or if I was looking on, on uh, the private market, I, I do my research first, make sure I understand what I'm looking for. What I really value, again, I love the World War II rifles. So uh, anything with a serial number below like 4 million or so. Yeah, because how many did six, they make? 6 million. 6 million, okay. CMP rifles uh, with, uh, with serial date lower than about 3.8, I believe, is is the cutoff for World War II. Original barrels or, or USGI barrels, all barrels have a date on them and they'll have all the proper stamps. They are USGI, the, the proof marks and Army ordnance cross cannons. One of the interesting parts of these military firearms is that most of the parts have some sort of stamp, number, designation, some indicator so that you can tell who made what and when it was made, correct? Yeah, some of them are more obvious than others. The stocks are a classic example. World War II M1 Grand stocks have a lot of stamps on them, and they call them cartouches. And a cartouche. A cartouche. That's a good word. Cartouche. Each one. <laughs> it is a good word. I'm glad you enjoy that. So, all right, each, tell us about the cartouche. Each one has a different meaning, uh, and, and as you can imagine, Stocks are one of the first thing to get beat up and replaced, especially the way the M1 Grand works. It uses the stock to sandwich the uh, receiver and the trigger group together. So when that gets worn out, they replace it. World War II stocks have have a lot of cartouches on them, and each one you can look at and identify um, when the the rifle was made. The 50s post-war stocks, they call them, all have cartouches on them, and then even rebuilt stocks in the 60s and 70s. That's one of the most obvious ones. There are other aspects of the gun that are, are telling from a distance. Uh, they had two different types of trigger guards, uh, milled and stamped steel trigger guards. The milled trigger guards, uh, I think, are just a beautiful piece of craftsmanship, so I really prize those. 
But otherwise, uh, every time I receive a rifle, I, I tear it down and I'm, I'm looking up drawing numbers like a nerd and trying to figure out when the parts were made. And, and each part is like a, a little piece of history that um, it just makes the rifle so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is wild to think about that these firearms, the desirable firearms, the World War II firearms. By the way, can you look up some of the histories of these? No. Uh, there there are a few uh, soldiers that recorded their their serial numbers, but back then they didn't have computers to keep these kind of records. And when wartime hit, they just stopped recording serial numbers, period. Or, or what parts are oh, guns there, anywhere. What, was it in the 1911s that you had serial numbers that were the same across multiple manufacturers? Yeah, that happened uh, with 1911s and M1 Grands where uh, the way it works is the U.S. government gave each manufacturer a certain set of serial numbers to manufacture under, and they were pumping out guns so fast that they'd run past their serial number range and duplicate somebody else's. So. There are Colts with the same serial number as Ithaca's and, and Winchester's with the same serial number as Springfield Armory. Oh, man. It's, How cool would that be mess. to have two different guns with the same serial number? There there are actually whole groups of people what? dedicated to trying to find the match to their rifle. And I have I have two rifles that have duplicated serial numbers, and I'm trying to find— You found your life's mission. Yeah. Now you can die a happy man as soon as you find matching serial numbers. Okay, so so when you're looking at, if you're to look at an M1 Garand, you know, there's a couple of things to consider. You want to have certain serial number range, original parts, you know, is ideal. What, what else? Yeah, original parts, uh, a, a good finish. Um, that can change from person to person. You, it really gets into personal preference from here. They made a lot of different stocks out of different material like Birch, Beach, uh, Hackberry, which I didn't even know about until uh, I, the old Hackberry stock. You're yeah. not seeing that on the custom gun manufacturing <laughs> websites. No, no, no definitely Hackberry. not. Different barrels, uh, different manufacturers of barrels. LMR, uh, which stands for Line Material Company, they were one of the manufacturers of barrels in Korean War and, and are very desirable. They shoot really well. So it really comes down to personal preference after you make sure that it is a correct USGI rifle that you're purchasing and that you're looking at. So whatever personal preference that you like past that, but original as original as you can get is usually the most desirable. Yeah. So when you're looking at these, at these rifles, if you're like, yeah, I want a piece of history. I want this. I want a world war II rifle. I mean, the cool factor is, is through the roof. I think in my opinion, just be aware that there are fakes and there are people that are trying to scam, just like with any other, anything that's desirable. The resources you'd recommend? The CMP actually has a form uh, where it, it kind of became the unofficial official place for anything 1911 or M1 Grand related. And there is a ton of information on there. A forum. A forum. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so that that's one of the places I've gotten most of my information. There are also a couple other websites that, that has information on drawing numbers and serial numbers and parts and dates. Lots of information online to, to figure out, you know, what you have or what you're trying to buy. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and the thing is, we're all about like the new calibers. You know, you get new caliber development, you're trying to get better ballistic coefficients, and you're trying to get the best consistency that you can out of these new rounds with new new powders and new components for for bullets and everything like that and the new firearms and and the technology is really interesting a lot of it though is it's funny that it's rooted so far back in history i think that that's that's 
kind of interesting. So with all of the modern rifles, the a lot of the the new stuff that's available, it's kind of a, a breath of fresh air. When you think about a rifle that's like the M1 Garand, and if you listen to a few episodes back, we did a, a story as an ode to D-Day and the landing on Normandy. And to think about, there's a possibility that you could own a rifle, that there was a man, an American soldier, who was carrying that firearm in the Pacific or in the European theaters, and that he was carrying it, that he used it to shoot the enemy, that he carried it through some of the worst conditions you know, that humans can experience. I, I know one of, one of the generals, I can't remember who, had mentioned the M1 Grand. He's like, this, this thing is great. Even in foxholes, when dust and dirt, it still doesn't jam. Just to give you an idea, these guys are in the mud and dirt and ocean spray and all of these things, and, and you can have a piece of that. But I mean, the, the cool factor really is there. Uh, and I think it's really interesting to just, you, you know, you get one of these uh, firearms and you're like, this thing was manufactured in 1939. Mm-hmm. This thing definitely saw action. Mm-hmm. This thing was carried by another human being somewhere else in the world. But it's just, it is a piece of history. Here, displaced like 80, 90 years later, you have a legacy piece of history that you can then pass on, you know, to your kids and to your grandkids as like a display of the history of of our country and i think that's really cool and i think it's a really interesting thing yeah it i mean you can't overstate it enough when my very first m1 grand was a january of 1944 that's when it was made and when i learned that imagining everything that it had been through storming the beaches of normandy you know being in europe and then uh they're still finding m1 grands in battlefields like uh, somebody just posted uh, online a receiver that they found half rusted out where you could barely read the serial number that was found in Bastogne and uh, it was really close to another serial number of one of the guns I have and in the excitement I still feel when when I learned that its brother was at Bastogne and it possibly could have been too it's a feeling that you don't get from any other gun yeah, man, the cool factor is through the roof. I'm sure that you all have certain guns that you're really passionate about. Jason is really passionate about these M1 Garands, and we didn't get into the 1911s as much. Lots of cool factors there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Wilderness Warrior. Thank you, Jason, for coming on the show and, and sharing some of your expertise in this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I would be remiss if I did not mention, and Jason can share in this with me, one of our sponsors, Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings Butchery, located in Illinois, somewhere in Illinois that I'm sure is a glorious part of the country because it's away from Cook County, a.k.a. Chicago. It's in southern Illinois uh, with our friends uh, Quinn Bible, just a pro as far as meat and cutting it is concerned. Jason actually has some salt and strings beef, oh, beef. Uh, and pork and pork they're bacon oh man yeah, their bacon is good i'm plowing through bacon it is so good yeah yesterday i took my boys camping in my bus that was an adventure man i'll tell you what i got a five-year-old and a three-year-old in a bus with my dad we cooked up a pound of their bacon for breakfast and it was gone i mean but it's camping so you're gonna eat a ton of bacon but those t-bone steaks man oh dude two inches thick. Anyway, I just want to thank them for being our sponsors. If you're interested in some delicious beef, 
You can go to their website, saltandstrings.com, and you can order one of their beef bundles, and they will ship it right to your door. You don't have to drive to Nebraska like we did to do that. You can get it delivered right to your door. So go to saltandstrings.com and order your beef. We'll talk to you next week.